Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. In this week's episode, we're talking wellness and well-being and what that means for us, both personally and professionally. In this fast-paced world, my guest shares her story on what sparked her passion for helping people and organizations realize, understand, and unlock the benefits of focusing on their wellness and well-being. She's a sought-after corporate wellness consultant, a wellness coach, engaging facilitator, and mindfulness teacher. In this wide-ranging chat, she shares her thoughts, insights, and tips, along with some reflections during her life. Prepare to be empowered, educated, and energized when it comes to all things wellness as I catch up with the founder and director of Sunrise Well, Ruth Kent. Ruth, welcome to Share. Hi, thank you, Steve. Thanks for welcoming me. So good to have you on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad to be here and be able to talk with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been uh, great to connect previously and I'm excited and really interested to hear more of your story. Yeah, great. So I'd love, love it if you start with a snapshot on who is Ruth Kent. <laughs> um, wow, a snapshot. I guess, how do you begin with something like that? I'll start really quickly at the beginning, I guess, and, and do a, a little run through of everything that's the big moments until, I, until now. Perfect. So I grew up in Southeast Queensland, in the, basically in the bush, in the country, and you know, I, I, you know, at the time, I think I, I didn't really appreciate how great it was. But now I look back and I think, oh, we were wild. We ran around in the country, climbed trees and did all those crazy things and looked up at the stars, beautiful Milky Way every night. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I started. And I went to university in my 20s. And from there, I started teaching English as a second language and did a lot of travel. So I don't think I was one of those people that really knew what to do. So, you know, this is way back when you had to go through this giant course book at the end of year 12 or this giant book and kind of think about, okay, probably this uni, probably this course, but not really knowing. So I studied psychology. I did some art history as well. And towards the end of my degree, I, well, halfway through the degree, I realized I didn't really want to be a psychologist. And that's what I thought, you know, that was the path. So I started to move towards health and population health at the end of that degree, just taking a few electives. And I realized that I'm actually interested in public health, population health and health promotion. So I did a postgraduate diploma in, in public health. But when I graduated from my first degree, I just went off teaching English, traveling around um, different countries, living in different countries. And again, I, I guess 
you don't really think about it at the time, but I think it was a really great thing to do. And then I landed in Sydney in my 30s and spent a long time there. So I moved back to teaching. I spent a little bit of time in the government working in the Department of Health, but I moved back to teaching when I moved to Sydney and kind of just climbed through, I guess, the teaching ranks. So I ended up teaching in higher education, especially around health sciences. So I kind of found my way back a little bit to health. And at the same time, I started working on my business. So in the, where was it, around early 2012, started thinking about building a business, which was initially more to do with the things that I enjoyed doing, like meditation and yoga. And I didn't really think about bringing in the public health at that time. So I just sort of continued working, but building my business at the same time. Had two children as well. We moved back up to Brisbane late 2019. Yeah. Sort of here we are, went through the pandemic like everyone else. And in that time, my business has grown. I'm not teaching at all. I haven't taught for, oh, I don't know, years and years, just been focused on my business. Now, tell me a bit more about your overseas travel and, and teaching overseas. What was that experience like? It was great. It was one of those things, again, it was when you relied on newspapers for jobs. And I remember just thinking, I was, I guess I was getting to the end of my degree and thinking, well, what am I going to do now? And looking through the newspaper to see, oh, there might be something interesting in there. And there was this little clip on all expenses paid, basically go and teach and live in South Korea. And I had a boyfriend at the time. I said, do you, do you want to go? <laughs> and he was like, I guess so. And we, we went off. We did a, I did a one-year contract there and came back went back again, met some amazing people, people from all around the world. So I was only 21 at the time. And, you know, I think it was just a great formative experience. And that feeling to be in a country with absolutely no understanding, language, culture, we had no exposure to South Korea before that. So a big learning curve. And the second year that I went back teaching, I learned how to read Korean and speak a lot more. I think the first year was just kind of finding my bearings and just learning how to teach because I didn't actually know how to teach. That was a whole other thing to learn because you, when you get the contract, it's you were a native speaker and you have a degree and that, that enables you to be a teacher over there or at least used to be. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of experience in, the, in those two years. I went off to Japan as well a little bit, spent some time there and at some point went traveling around Europe and landed in Brazil, spent 18 months or so there. And another point on another journey ended up in Morocco for about a three months, just a short stay. I love travel. I love, I guess I love that being in unfamiliar surroundings and just trying to figure things out and not having it all planned. That's what I enjoy. So, <laughs> where's the favorite place that you've traveled? Oh, none. They're all they're all good. We recently traveled to Spain. My husband's Spanish, and we stopped over in South Korea. It was my first time back in twenty years, and it was just so good. So, I, I guess I have, especially when you've lived there, you get these memories that are really they kind of pull you back. They're very tugging on your heart. The you know when you have those memories where you feel like you're actually there again with the sound and the smell and everything. So they all had that. They, I have memories for all of them. So yeah. <laughs> and you would have enjoyed some great food as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. And sort of just trying things, just giving it a go. And, you know, when you're living there for a year or so, you don't just eat out all the time. So you figure out how am I going to put together a meal? And I tended to, and I think a lot of foreigners were tending to just put together what they knew. 
So like making a spaghetti or making a, I don't know, a salad, but you've got this array of unknown ingredients and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And yeah, it's good fun. And teaching in in those Asian countries, what were some of the differences that you found from an Australian education system to a South Korean or or Japanese education system? Definitely a very different view of education at that time anyway. And the kids were coming in at the age of two, two and a half. So a lot of the initial work I did was with these academies. The kids would at two, three, four, five, start going to their main academy, which would be a long day. And then they'd come to classes after that. So they'd come at the age of three or four and do another two or three hours of English. So there was this real push to have the English language as kids were growing up, which pros and cons, I guess, for a child of that age. Yeah. So that's one of the big ones. Definitely definitely around that. And at the time, I think it's quite different. So when we came back to South Korea just earlier this year, I think they were quite used to people from other countries. But when I was there, we were kind of a novelty a lot of the time and just getting used to being, not interpreting things in a bad way when people are looking at you or they're curious or interested. So yeah, that that was the other part of it as well which I, I loved. Yeah. One of the things I, I've noticed with our boys going through school is a lot of their friends and a lot of the students that have come from Asian backgrounds, they've got a, a very strong discipline and work ethic when it comes to education. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose so. And like I said, pros and cons, because there can be a lot of pressure with that. So yeah. Yep. Not, not necessarily. I, me personally, I've really had a push for my kids who are young to just be outside. I guess that was my upbringing and I think you figure things out later on as well. So uh, for me, it's more of a balance, the holistic sense of I think you can learn a lot just by being outside and digging a hole or climbing a tree or putting a camp thing together or all those sorts of things too. Yeah, it was funny. I saw the other day a picture of bikes on someone's front lawn and it said, this is where we knew where people were <laughs> back in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And now it's a little bit a little bit different, but sure I always love driving past the park and kids are building a cubby, right? You don't see it very often, but you do still see it. Mm. Kids fishing in a lake, kids on bikes and stuff like that. I, I just sit there and I go, that was my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would love to be able to just push them outside when they're just maybe a little bit older and say, you know, go away and come back at six. (laughs) But yeah, who knows? We'll see. I'm not sure if I'll um, feel comfortable with that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when I was growing up, it was the time to come home was when the lights, the street lights came on. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember I lived in Kamira and I remember I used to ride to a friend's place in Red Bank Plains, right? So you're talking a, a fair few kilometers, but we'd do that after school and ride over and ride around, ride through the bush. But these days it's, there's not as much of that. My son, he loves his um, mountain biking, so he goes out with friends into the bush and and everything like that, which is great to just get them out and away from screens and technology and yeah. you know all the things that we didn't have growing up um, that they do have the Snapchats and the Facebooks and the Instagram and everything else that that's kind of jumped in. Absolutely, yeah. We haven't quite got there yet, and I'm dreading it to be honest. Uh, I'm very well aware of it, and. Yeah, I'm already starting to think ahead like, okay, how, how are we going to manage this? Because I think it's just huge for parents to have to have to go through. So, yeah. Yeah, it, there's a lot more challenges and that's the, the big challenge, I suppose, is when it comes to bullying and pressure on kids and the expectation on kids and they're overstimulated. 
with what they've got these days. And, and that is a really big challenge because not only, and we're going to get into the wellness and well-being, but wellness and well-being in, in business and corporate and in organizations and in adult life, it's hard when we've got these kids that are overstimulated that are going to be going into these workplaces and going into adult life. And their brains are more stimulated than what we had as kids. Yeah, right. And and you've got to have a good look at the research around attention span and, you know, how much people are going to have that with them. You know, how much time can they be without checking their phone or even bring in, I don't know if this would ever happen, but regulations around those sorts of things, because it might be that it becomes such a detriment to people's functioning that they can't sort of go 10 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes without checking if someone's replied to a, a comment or liked a post or whatever it is. So I was chatting on a podcast recently to Wade Hurst in regards to mental health and mental health first aid. And he also works with an organization dealing with parents and kids and technology use. And we were talking about how there's not really a lot of regulation in regards to these social media platforms. And mm. it's very easy to be on there and be someone different to who you are. So kids don't know who they're interacting with, or you don't know who you're interacting with. And also there's a lot of these apps have actually got, like I know Snapchat, my son, I don't know, I, I can't remember what the, the kind of term is, but it rewards you. You've kind of got to have so many posts each day. And if you miss a day, then you start back at one. And oh, no. yeah. this kind of addictive tool for the platforms, which get great use, um, but it's not not good for the kids. Yeah, and I think it, you know, speaks volumes when you look at at least what I've read that a lot of the CEOs and the tech leaders in Silicon Valley have prevented their kids from getting onto or having phones and delaying their use of social media. So they know very well what happens to the kids when they're on it. And the issue really is also the the little dopamine hits that they get every time they they get a notification and it's replacing the dopamine hits of other everyday life and what should be actually happening for them. So yeah, it's real worry. And like anything in life, I think a lot of these things, we're not actually going to see the effects of them. Mm, mm, yeah, exactly. Especially in, you know, in the teenage years now, you've got lots of kids vaping, right? Yeah. And I remember speaking to my son has asthma and I was speaking to his doctor and his doctor was saying to me, if you, if you want to smoke, you're better off smoking tobacco than you are smoking a vape. Because he said, it's really, it's really bad. We were making such headway with smoking, right? Smoking was reducing. Now vaping's come in. They've had to change from tobacco over to vaping. And then it's all different flavors, right? So it's all fun and it's all tasty and it's all hip and modern, but the effects of it, he says, is just awful. Mm, yeah. I don't know if it was ever created with good intentions. I like to think that that someone had a good intention in making it and that it might have been a replacement or a, a, an alternative that wasn't supposed to cause such harm, but it does. And yeah, they really have to do something about it. So, you know, and going back to the technology, I guess you've got to argue the devil's advocate point of view to say that when they introduced newspapers, when they introduced TV, there was always this kind of pushback to say, especially the older generation saying, how is this going to, this is going to affect the kids and they're, they're never going to get off. And I know that that's always happened with evolution and, and technological change, but this is just so pervasive and so ingrained in such daily life for people that, yeah, they're really 
they really do have to have a good look at, like you said, we don't want to be waiting 30, 40 years before we go, oh, whoops, oh, sorry. You know, we, it would be great if we could actually be on the front foot with it and get the regulations in or get some monitoring in and really get a sense of how, how is it actually affecting people and what are the positive and what are the not so great changes that are happening. Yeah, it'll be interesting as more of that research comes out and, and we're able to learn from that. Mm, absolutely. Now, Ruth, in regards to wellness and well-being, health and fitness, mindfulness, it's a, a journey that you've progressed along. What started your passion into that field? So way back when I was 15, I guess, or even prior to that, I think my upbringing was just a very open open upbringing. My parents didn't push any agendas with what I should or shouldn't be learning about or doing. And they were quite happy for me to go off and learn different things. We weren't a religious family, but I decided to jump into joining my cousins sometimes at the church and just to see what they were doing. And and so by the time I reached 15, I guess I was already very open to learning. And I my boyfriend at the time, his mum and dad lived on a kind of a commune learning uh, or they're practicing meditation. They were sort of not Hare Krishna, but probably you might think they were Hare Krishna or there was some kind of alignment there. They lived there and I, I would go out and visit and have dinner there and things like that. And I knew that they woke up every morning and did this meditation thing at about 5.30 every day. One day his mum said, would you like to come and they're doing a three-day kind of beginner's course. Would you like to come and attend the course and learn? And I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to. I went along and I was one of the lucky people, I think. It doesn't happen often for people who learn meditation, but I was one of the lucky people that had an amazing experience the very first time. That hooked me like a, it was just incredible the way that I was affected by it. And I was hooked in straight away. I guess I was lucky in that way, but I can also understand how other people could struggle because, you know, a lot of people, they sit down to meditate and they close their eyes and nothing happens or they get frustrated or they start wondering, you know, what, what should I be doing? I must be doing something wrong and, you know, all of that. So I, maybe I was impressionable. Maybe it was just the right time. Um, maybe it was the, the group of people I was with. I don't really know, but I had a great experience. And from there, I kept on going. As you know, in my 20s, I traveled and I did all the typical people in their 20s types of activities. I was drinking, I was partying, I was doing all that sort of stuff. I wasn't always meditating, I guess is what I should say. I always feel like I have to add that caveat in because I've, I've been meditating for a really long time, almost 30 years now, but it's had its ups and downs. And I guess the key to that is that it's, I've always come back to it. And so there have been periods, especially like I said in my earlier years, where things are messy or difficult or I'm having a hard time. And I would maybe not be ready or I'd, I'd sort of come back to it in my mind and think, what's missing? What do I need? And the meditation, the mindfulness is always something I was able to come back to, like an anchor. And it would just bring me back down to ground, back, you know, back to earth. Yeah, it's just been amazing. So for me, it underpins everything. I can't, every, every interaction I have, all the, the work that I do, I feel as though the mindfulness and the self-awareness is underneath everything because if you've got that, everything else runs better. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's it. And you've turned, you've turned your wellness and well-being into a business. How was that leap? <laughs> oh, massive. 
I wasn't one of those people that knew what I was doing all the way through and I didn't have a game plan. I was just aware of what I liked and what I did and that I wanted to bring it to people. So I started like 2012, 2013, exploring that side of things, you know, how to start a business, what does it look like? what kind of name should I use and yeah, what, what do I want to have inside the business? So there was like sort of mindfulness, meditation, yoga, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess it kind of just started rolling from there into becoming what it, what it is today. I did have a year that was, that was sort of, I guess, a catalyst year and that had a huge impact on me in terms of whether I was going to do it or not do it. I think because I had so many self-doubts and wasn't really sure what I was doing and I did not have a business background, I was holding myself back, was reluctant to take any leaps into what what was so unknown. Uh, And so then I had this year that was really quite intense and I realized, you know, what do I have to lose? You know, there's nothing to lose. Just give it a go. And from there is when it really started to build and take off. So that was actually it's the same time. It was all, it was 2013. It was a really big year. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what happened in that year? So, yeah, it was, uh, it's funny. It's one of those years that you look back and, well, when you're in the middle of it or all of those types of events or situations, you don't realize the impact it has, especially for me. It's only been this year that I've realized, which is about 10 years later, that I've realized, actually, I can, I should speak about it. You know, it's something that has impacted me and, and it might be something that if I talk about these things, it might help other people or, you know, just share information or give people that little bit of a nudge. It was all, it, all the big things happened in the space of six months. And I have both of my grandmothers, so my, my mother's mother and my father's mother, both passed away. So the first one passed away in in around March and the second one passed away in September. So it's sort of this six month period. So, you know, I I guess when my first grandmother passed away, I was going through grieving, supporting my family, that kind of thing. And it was only a few weeks later that given I was a teacher, we don't necessarily teach every day or five days a week full-time and I must have been at home having a day off or something and it must have been around 10 o'clock in the morning and I stepped out to go to the shops. I was living in sort of the back streets of Newtown, Camperdown, beautiful share house that I was living in with my husband and some other people and yeah, just I think it must have been like going to pick up something from the shops for dinner or that was what I had in my mind. And I stepped out of the house and started walking up the road and I looked over the road and there was, you know, I still have this vision of this person lying straight down flat on the um, footpath. And you sort of, your brain takes a while to catch up. Like I had this kind of double take, like what's going on there? And, you know, it was a very residential and very normal street. I didn't have any thoughts around it being anyone but a neighbor. So I ran over the road and, and it was someone I didn't actually recognize. He just lived in my street. And I realized that obviously something really, really wrong had happened. And I tried to roll him over. And I think I panicked at that point and called like, help, called out. And just next door, this person heard me. There was a a guy came running out and it turns out he was a training to be a nurse. So he had a pretty good background to stay calm. I was panicking and we rolled him over and started CPR on him. Well, we did all the, you know, the steps in first aid and eventually 
at some point we realized that we needed to start CPR. We were calling Triple O at the same time. So they were talking us through organizing the ambulance and suddenly we're doing this. It was not what I thought was going to be happening that morning. And we were working, you know, on him and it's really hard. He was a really big man, really tall and just a a heavy set kind of man. And yeah, there's so much going through your mind when you're doing something like that, you know, and I think there's a very visceral feeling I still have. And to be honest, even now when I see a pair of, like if someone has stepped out of some boots, he, he probably he had big boots on. So if someone steps out of boots and I see them sitting in a funny angle anywhere around the neighborhood, I still get kind of triggered to remember that exact scene and I have a little panic moment because it just brings me straight back to there. So yeah, we were at least 20 minutes uh, giving him CPR until the ambulance arrived and they took over. They did restore, so they used the defibs and they restored a heartbeat, but with heartbeats, it, it didn't get into the healthy rhythm that they were looking for. They did take him to the hospital and the ambulance officer said, no, you looked at me and said, you're coming with us. So they treated me for shock and I uh, spoke to a counselor there because it was just, I think I was just totally overwhelmed. And they restored some kind of heartbeat to him and they gave him some stents and did some work and I think he lived for a few more days but they did have to turn off his life support machine. That was really hard to be a part of. His family reached out, his partner who he was living with was in a lot of contact with us. I think she found a lot of strength maybe from being in contact with the person or the people who were with him in those final moments. And they even invited us to go along to the funeral. And I think that was quite, I mean, it was a bit surreal, to be honest, but also just probably good for me to help to close and feel a part of that. And the main message from his family was that they were just happy that there was somebody with him in that time and and taking care of him. So yeah, that was huge experience. And, you know, ironically, and this is something that keeps kind of popping up in my head is that was probably a month prior. I don't even know, maybe a month or two prior, I had done my first CPR course ever. And now, you know, after I'd done that, I realized how important it is to have those refreshes because everyone's different. Some people might just become a superhero and jump straight in and remember everything that they were taught, but I did not. It was gone. It was totally gone. And I think I kind of beat myself up about that a lot for a while because it was like, I could have done more. I should have done more. There's a lot of that that goes through your head. What if I hadn't have stopped to check my bag before I left the house? Or what if I'd left five minutes earlier or all of these sorts of things? But I guess it also gives, it gave me that sense of, you just don't know. You don't know when things are going to happen or how. I'm sure in speaking with his partner, she was. She said, well, he was just here. He just said goodbye and he stepped out of the house, walked 200 meters and you know, had a massive heart attack. So you don't know. And that, that's been one of my big I, – I think I already had that. I've always had that in my mind. I've always lived that way to have that sense that you know, we don't know what's going to happen and we need to enjoy where we are and what we have. But that just gave me the fire to bring what I wanted to bring into the world. So there was that. And then I think the next part of the crazy six months that I had was my husband. So he was born with a congenital heart defect, which he had an operation on as a baby. And he had monitoring through his life for another part 
of his heart that they were looking at. And he knew at some point he was going to be having an operation. And a few, I said this was sort of six weeks after that incident with me giving CPR, we were went in to have his checkup and we spoke with this cardiothoracic surgeon who said, the limits are reached. What are you doing next Tuesday? Because we want to take you in for open heart surgery. And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, okay, this is another huge thing we're just going to have to do because there's no other choice. You you don't get to think about, you know, oh, can we do it next week or the week after? They were, they were very serious that we needed to do it straight away. And there was a huge thing for him to adapt to. So he had three months of recovery, open heart surgery. You can't lift anything, almost not even a pillow. So a lot of rehabilitation was needed and adapting for him to a mechanical heart valve that they put in and changes to his lifestyle, his medication. He has lifelong medication for that. Yeah, just a big, a big change, a big thing for us to to go through. And then not long after that, my second grandmother passed away. So it was just a huge, huge year and took a lot to go through. But like I said, when you're in it, you're just, I think a lot of people experience this when you're in the middle of these kinds of heavy moments in life, you're just trying to get through it. You're just living it not realizing or thinking about, oh, five years time or 10 years time, everything's going to be great. And I'll be able to look back and I'll be able to use some of the learning from this experience and apply it over here. You're just living it and you're just there. Sometimes you're just in survival and just trying to trying to make make every day work. I think when my husband was going through his surgery, I I put it on myself to say, look, I think people heal better and faster and have a better recovery when they have that positive and very optimistic support. So I threw myself into that. I'm going to be extremely positive. I'm going to be very, very supportive and just not turn this into a, a negative thing that we're ha- going through something we don't want to go through, but let's let's try and help him to heal by staying clear and positive. And yeah, that's that's where we've ended up. So that six months, it would have been pretty scary in in all of those situations and a lot of sadness, a lot of pain, but it sparked so much and it also pushed you to go down the path of launching your business and yeah. and helping people with their wellness and well-being and, and their health. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it especially gave me that there's now or never, you know, there is no next time or later, or you just don't, you don't, you literally do not have that we none of us have that luxury of knowing that oh I can do it later on after I do this this and this if it's something that you need to do it has to be done as soon as you possibly can of course within reality I don't mean like for me it wasn't about throwing everything away and just diving in and I knew I was going to be having children and I wanted to be preparing for life and a I had more to lose, I guess, if I if things weren't going to work out. So being cautious and being careful, but at the same time, just not holding yourself back. Yeah, that's been my biggest takeaway from that that time. Well, they say tomorrow is not promised to any of us. The only thing we've got is the now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with your wellness and well-being, I'd love your insights around, from a personal perspective, what does wellness and well-being mean to you? Well. It's changed a lot. So it's interesting. I I look at it from two perspectives at the same time. We have a lot of individual ownership over our health and well-being, you know, making those decisions, those daily moments of 
decision making. And that's what I think the last, the, the beginning of my business was about, you know, helping people to coaching people through making healthier choices, healthier decisions. And I'd say the first five years of my business was really classes, trainings, workshops, this kind of thing to bring different aspects of wellness. So maybe self-care, stress management, mindfulness, all of these types of topics to help people to say, what can you do today to make a difference to your life? And I have a, a firm and strong belief in that. But in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of work over the pandemic, obviously. I think a lot of workplaces really kicked into gear on the health and well-being. It wasn't just, it became much less of a perk and more of a, this is essential, we need to support people. So I had a lot of work during that time. So that was great. It really opened up. And because we're all on Zoom, a lot of, I had a lot of national, even Asia Pacific work. And that, that's been great. What I found though, and this is kind of the other side of it for me, is the population health the public health side of it, that people can only work within the bounds of what is possible and available to them. So as you've probably, we were talking about earlier, there's been changes in legislation around psycho, psychosocial safety and understanding that we need to create the conditions for people to make better choices as well. So I see both sides. I see the individual ownership, but I also see that working conditions or living conditions need to support those choices. Otherwise, people are going to be hitting a wall and that's where that learned helplessness comes in and where people don't or can't develop that sense of self-efficacy and ability to, to make good positive choices. So in the last few years with my business, this has been a lot more of my focus. You know, how can we create strategy? How can we, how can we actually have a good look at your unique workplace and understand that your people your jobs are going to be entirely different to the people next door, even in the same industry, because you're going to have a different makeup of workforce. You're going to have people from different cultures coming in. You might have a certain age or generational grouping of people, millennials versus older people. So just having a good look and helping to support workplaces with that side of things, because if we can create those conditions that suit those people, they're going to make also have that opportunity to make those better choices. So I'm not just coming in, which has been, you know, has happened to teach a mindfulness class for half an hour for some people who are really, really, really stressed out and put that bandaid on and, and walk away and think that that's going to be enough. But we can do both. We can support at the top. We can support in the moment of people's distress or issues. But we can also go further upstream and have a look at what might be behind some of that and whether we can fix things upstream before they actually come in and, and start affecting people's lives. So that's, that's what health and well-being is for me. Yeah, awesome. Through the work that you're doing with organizations, with companies, and I know you work with, with many, what are some of the things that they're implementing to increase wellness and well-being and that focus within their organizations? Well, I think, you know, like I said, all of them are different and some of them, some of the companies are still coming at it with a bit of a paintbrush approach to say like, oh, look, we've got, we've got free yoga or we've got free meditation classes or here's a couple of workshops. But a lot of them are now starting to pay a lot more attention to the mental well-being and the physical well-being of the staff. And as I said, there's legislation now to mandate that they start looking at the impact that that's having on, on people and that companies do have to take some ownership in how they contribute to people's mental well-being and, and also physical well-being, which is obviously with the 
health and safety that we've already got in place. I think people are starting to step up a lot more and also to understand that we, it is a, a work in progress. You don't have to have, like the workplaces don't have to have it all figured out. I think it's the open-mindedness to say, well, we don't really know what to do, but can we have a conversation? Can we have some support? We're trying to implement things. And, and like I said, some of some workplaces, they're trying to bring these things in. They're trying to show their employees that they care and that they're supporting them. It's just not always hitting the mark. And so you've got to, um, you've got to have a good look and think about, okay, before you start running like a series of workshops or before you start running a series of mindfulness classes, what do the people actually need? Do they actually need to work on their communication? Is there some kind of toxicity in teams, a certain team? Is there burnout? Do we need to address these things first before we kind of paint it over with some classes? And those are the ones that are uh, more effective. And, you know, the workplaces. All workplaces are having to have a look at this now, but the ones who are doing it well, they're doing it, they're building their brand at the same time. You know, people want to go there. And I think when we look at millennials and, you know, the newer generations coming through, they know that that's what they want and that's what they're asking their employers for when they go to an interview. Like, it's not, do you have office perks? Like, do I get free fruit at lunchtime? It's not that so much anymore. It's, you know, how are you going to support me? with my stress, my financial stress, my, my balance in life, because we all know it's really tough at the moment and it's just, it's getting harder. So, yeah. Is there any research that you've looked into in regards to the benefits of the wellness and wellbeing? Is there any actual data that's coming out of that yet? Yeah. Well, I mean, for years, there's been a, a lot of research around the return on investment, you know, that $1 into health and well-being and the minimum two to fifty I've seen up to four or five dollar return. But not only that, I think it depends on how you measure it. And of course it's a really hard thing to measure. How do you actually pinpoint what that return is and how how it is returned? But one of the areas that I guess leaders really need to think about is the brand loyalty or the company loyalty, the employee engagement all around the reduction in absenteeism and having people actually on the job and wanting to be on the job. These things, like I said, they're not always easy to measure, but it's something that over time you can start to see when you start working with with companies, that change. And you want to be an employer, especially these days, because it's very competitive and you have people staying in jobs for shorter and shorter time. You know, It's not like it used to be where you'd have a job in one company and stay there for 30 years. People shift and move around. So what are the things that make people want to work there. It's not, like I said, it's not the fruit bowls anymore. It's it's like, do I feel that sense of safety? Do I feel like I can be myself? And those lines between work and home and the authenticity of people to be themselves at work and feel okay and feel that inclusive workplace for everyone really. And to feel as though that they, they have that psychological safety to be able to say, to have that support around them and the supportive team environment. These are all the things that people are looking for. And so in terms of the data that it often comes down to ROI, but you can also just look at the ROI of retaining staff and the ROI of attracting the top talent, those types of things. So, Yeah, because in business, it's not just losing someone, keeping someone, but when you lose someone, you've lost, what's the value in one, getting them, onboarding them, mm. then training them, yep. then keeping them. 
And then you've got the downtime when they leave. There's so many different factors to look at from an organization basis when you lose someone. So retention and even with my brother, we've been talking about from a travel perspective and a, and a wellness and well-being, how can organizations start getting their teams out into nature? How can they yeah. put on retreats? How can they be putting on some of these events that are not just alcohol-fueled parties, yeah. but actually something that takes them out of the office builds team culture, a great dynamic, but also lets their brain stop from looking at a screen or being focused or stressed on their workplace environment, but just being part of a team and and really focusing more on their wellness and well-being. And I think the effects of that uh, are invaluable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess it's also just taking it out of being tokenistic. So we've got these amazing days that we have, like Are You OK Day, which is great. We have to raise that awareness, but we're encouraging people to have a conversation, like a tough conversation. Are you OK? No, I'm not OK. But what are we doing all the other parts of the, all the other days of the year to build that ability to be vulnerable? Because this is, this is the key. If I walk up to Jane in accounts and say, Are you OK? And I, don't have that connection with her. How am I going to have her open up and be vulnerable with me? And I know that probably actually you, you're the key person to talk to about this, you know, but how can we create that vulnerability and that ability for people to feel connected and authentic throughout the year so that you can have those conversations? Because that's the part, that's what I'm, I'm seeing a lot of People want to celebrate. We're doing Are You OK? and we're having cupcakes, but I don't see people celebrating we're creating a cohesive team that can communicate and that can share and can be vulnerable on in February and March and April, you know, every month of the year. And one of the key things I was talking to you earlier about the mental health first aid mm. and just doing my instructor course and doing the mental health first aid course for me, it was interesting because it's really about growing awareness, reducing the stigma. And when you talk about workplaces and organizations, the mental health first aid and mental health and well-being and, and wellness throughout these organizations needs to get to a point where people feel they can be vulnerable mm. without feeling like, oh, maybe then my job's at risk, you know, because a lot of people that are approaching burnout or in burnout or, or not feeling great or mentally not great, I look at it in a way that if that organization supports that person mm. to be and get the help they need, implement and help them through the struggles that everyone goes through at times, are you going to have a better employee and a better team member once they've moved through that and been helped through that? Of course you're going to be. Mm, yeah. And so, and that's, that's exactly it. So if you have that support and you have someone who is more productive and, and it's a real domino effect. So when someone's feeling supported and safe and they've got that sense of mental well-being, they're more likely to want to take up sports and, and make changes to their diet. And so it, it has a much broader effect than just having one-on-one -on -one quick conversation. You know, it can, it can change lives. It can change relationships because someone goes home happier. They have a better conversation with their partner and consequently decide to get counseling together or make those better decisions for themselves. But um, unless we come down to the seed and really consider, you know, the approach, then I think that there's a lot of missed op opportunity there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, and I think it's something that I'm reluctant to point the finger, but I think that we can do better. You know, I think that we, as a society, it's great. We're having these conversations. I think we can, we just really need to bring it in 
as part of life. Exercise wasn't a thing. It wasn't something people did a couple of decades ago. People didn't factor exercise into their life, but it's become part of who we are. It's part of our lifestyle and part of our culture. And I think that this will be too. And I think the key thing is it's not when you think about performance as a person, and I've realized this through my coaching journey is so many people are like, I want to be best at my job. I want to be best at work. I want to perform. I want to just hit all my goals. Mm. But if you don't know who you are, if you don't know what you need as a person, if you're not looking after yourself, you can't be the best in any situation. Mm. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And I think we're making headway. In society, we are making headway. There are a lot more programs and a lot more focus on wellness and well-being and health and fitness and spirituality and really unpacking past trauma and all these things that propel us and, and help us to move forward into a, into a better realm. But there's definitely a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. The fact that people are open to it, workplaces are open to it. I think it's changed. It has changed a lot and, and for the better, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Ruth, can I ask, with your wellness and well-being journey, what are some of the habits that you put into place to to keep you at the top of your game? I I, I have a few. <laughs> so, but having said that, circumstances can change things. So, having two children, it goes up and down like most things, and just trying to fit in around it. But I always do try to have some some sort of mindfulness or meditation as much as possible in the mornings. So I start my day with a minimum of five minutes if I can, up to 20, 30 minutes in a luxurious day. Most days actually is 20 minutes these days as my kids are a little older. That's one start and some sort of movement is another big one. So whether that's a 5, 10, 15, 20 minute short workout, if I can get a walk down along the water or if I can go for a swim or do some yoga for a longer session, then that's definitely what I do. And just making some good choices with my food and trying to get enough sleep. Those are the big ones for me. Sleep has been hard over the last, you know, my son is seven, nearly seven. So I don't know if I've slept properly for seven years or so, but I try my best. And I've lately started to really make it a priority because I've realized after my second child, how much, you know, how important it is. So yeah, those are the big ones. Ruth. What's the biggest challenge you've had in your life and how have you overcome it? Oh, biggest challenge. Oh, I I would say there's been a few. I don't know if there's one single one. I'd say that year was a big challenge. That was a big one and and really just getting perspective. Whatever, Whatever the big challenge has been, having a baby in a pandemic is not easy. That was a big challenge and we had just recently moved back up to Brisbane so don't have a strong or at the time a strong network. I would say all of these have any kind of big challenge perspective has been the thing that's got me through. Just trying to keep putting it in perspective, you know, long-term vision, zooming out, how big is this? I've gotten through big things before and looking back and, and having that perspective to say, it's been hard in the past. This is what I've done. Bring it into the current situation. Reminding myself that each day, it's, it's really a gift. Like it sounds such a, like such a cliche, but as hard as it is, just trying to see what the gift is in the day and what, what it is that's great about that day. And it's not always easy. I'm sure I'm just trying to think back, but I'm sure 
for example, with my daughter, my, my second child early on, I had had a cesarean and just my husband who was working full time, he was the only one available for support because we were in a pandemic. So I couldn't have visitors very, very often. So I think thinking back, like just trying to find the the special moments in there, like Mm -hmm. what's special in this day? What is, what am I grateful for? What am I happy about? Yeah. I love that reflection on thinking back to the struggles of past when you're going through something and going, I got through that. I can get through this. Yeah. And looking to the future on that, uh, that's a great reflection there. Yeah, yeah. And I think also just the perspective of yourself amongst humanity. So a lot of what's come up for me over the last few years is self-compassion. So understanding that I'm in a, I'm in a moment of suffering right now, but this isn't forever. This is a moment. And there are other moments that are not suffering. And it, if you start to have a look at your life, any experience you're having, is transitory. There's nothing that stays permanent. And that's been a big part of sort of my teachings in mindfulness and meditation and and yoga. And I've brought that through as well, because when you look at it, happiness is great, doesn't last forever. Sadness is great, doesn't last forever, isn't great, sorry, and doesn't last forever. A lot of these things, when we back or when we look at them, we know that there's a beginning and an end to them. And we can, if we can remember that, we can get through it. Yeah, excellent. Through your life, what was success to you earlier on in life? And what does success mean to you on a daily basis now? Yeah, I was not a person driven by success as a child. I was not interested in being my definition. I, I had not been asked that as a child. So I, I, if I was going to ask myself, I, I wonder what I would say. But I, I was driven by curiosity and and happiness, seeking happiness, seeking joy, I guess, and less so about being successful. So success for me when I was younger would have been happiness, I think, just happiness. Being happy, it's, it's always been my biggest driver. If I'm not happy, then I need to do something about it or make a change or that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's really changed because that's a big driver for me now. I think success definitely is not um, a measure of success to be any kind of material type of thing, but to get to the end of each day feeling that I've been true to myself is, is a big part of me. And that doesn't mean being happy every day because that's not truthful. I think being honest with myself about what am I feeling and where am I feeling and what, what, what's going on for me. And of course, with that applying things that might help me to not feel, if I'm not feeling great, then help me to not feel that way. But just having the truth to say to myself, I'm not feeling good or I am feeling good. And this is, this is where I'm at, not pushing it away, not ignoring it. And also having an understanding of how that's affecting everything else. Because for me, I guess the other part of success is my relationships, especially the the close ones around me, my my husband, my family, my children, and feeling connected to them. So if I'm honest with myself, then I will know that I'm losing losing my crap at my kids, you know, if I might be shouting at them or being tense or whatever, that I need to start looking at myself and 
what's behind all of that and trying to, to be honest with myself about maybe you're angry, but what's underneath the anger? Maybe you're frustrated or sad or you need a bit of time out or whatever that is. And maintaining as far as possible that self-awareness so I can keep connected to my kids and my family. Yeah, that's so yeah. good. And so interesting as well. Every time if we're frustrated or we're angry or we get emotional about something, a lot of the time it's what comes out is actually just the distraction. It's something deeper within us, how we're feeling, mm. that's actually causing that to bubble up. Yeah. And we so easily, some weeks are really hard. Like my kids are young, it's testing, it's trying life, work, all of those sorts of things. There'll be some weeks where you'll just think, oh, I just want to get to the end of the week and have a wine, you know, something like that. And really just stepping back and saying like, okay, it's fine. Have a glass of wine, have a social, whatever. Is that what it is? Or is it you just want to escape? So trying to keep check of myself there, because whether it's a wine for some people, it's, you know, it could be anything, any kind of way of escaping. It could be Netflix, could be ice cream, could be anything. But is it because you actually need to just stop and have a bit of time and have a bit of self-awareness and think about how you are feeling right now? And yeah, just trying to keep check on that, I think is a big one too. Now in your life, who's been your greatest teacher? I, I don't think I have a greatest teacher. I have, especially since becoming a parent, my parents both of them, I've reflected back on, on how much they have taught me and I'm truly humbled and I wish I could go back as a teenager and <laughs> <laughs> rewrite some of those scenes, but they've been just constant. Loyal's not the right word, but they've just been so constant in my life and supportive and also taught me how to be good parents, you know, the things that my mum did, the things that my dad did for us growing up as kids and and the support they've sh- they've shown me and my my brothers I think over the last few decades as adults as well. I think we've we've just been very very lucky to have parents like them. Aside from that, I think just all the experiences there's always a there's always a teacher moment in there, you know, there's always something. So just trying to take away some kind of teaching from every situation whether it's a good one or a bad one and just trying to learn yeah and and apply the principles of what I think is a good life based on on those teachings now you mentioned there a teenage Ruth (laughs) what would you say if you could sit down with your younger self what advice would you give a a teenage or a younger Ruth for the life ahead Mm. so I'm I'm not a kind of person who wants to change things. Uh, I kind of accept where I am and and I don't have regrets. So I don't think I would say don't do this or don't do that. (laughs) I kind of, I feel like we are where we are as a result of all the things. It's kind of that butterfly effect and even that tiny change could alter completely your course. And I'm really happy with my life. I'm happy with what I've done. I feel glad that I've experienced all the things, you know, all the travel and all the different experiences and the people that I've been able to meet. And of course, to be where I am now with my family and have these beautiful kids. And so all these things I'm just so grateful for and all the experiences, good and bad, I'm really grateful for them. So I don't, I don't feel as though there's anything that I need to warn or to tell that person that was me at the age of 15. But if there was one thing I guess would be just to trust. I think I've spent a lot of 
time within self-doubt and a lot of time, you know, second-guessing myself and wondering, should I do this or shouldn't I do it? And what are people going to think? And I wouldn't reverse anything that's happened and make it happen earlier or change like my business. I wouldn't have started it 10 years earlier or anything like that. But but just to let go of the the self-doubt and to trust myself and to trust that it's all going where it's where it needs to go. And especially when there've been any dark moments or any hard moments, then I think that's been something that is something good to remember that everything is moving towards an outcome, a place. And especially when you're in your teens, I think you need to hear that like a lot (laughs) for many of us probably needed to hear that because there's a lot of that, where am I going? What am I doing? feeling going on. So yeah. There's some great messages in that response. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. Now, Ruth, you've got your own business. For people that want to connect with you, I know you do workshops. I know you offer coaching and and to work with organizations in regards to implementing wellness and well-being and a number of things in their business. What's the best way for them to connect with you? Two ways I think will be the easiest. You can obviously go to my website. It's www.sunrisewell.com.au. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn. So you can connect with me personally. That's where I do most of my posting or connect with my business as well. I have a page on there, Sunrise Well. Those are the the ways that I think you could get in touch and just reach out and say, hey, uh, yeah, more than happy to talk to people. So, Well, I appreciate your time today. I love catching up and discussing wellness and well-being and you know connecting with people that are making a difference in this world and and that's definitely you so it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me Stephen. Really I think what you're doing is amazing. Your podcast being able to have conversations with people and just learn people's stories I think is is great and the work that you're doing as well so thank you. Everyone's got a story. And I think there's power in that. And so many people have got the stories and it's about having a platform that we can share them and and we can learn from each other. Mm. We can be there and we can also support each other with those stories as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Thanks, Ruth. Great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.